Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Tonight on Drama on One, we celebrate the Ulysses centenary with a selection of episodes introduced by playwright Michael West. The RTE Players 1982 recording directed by William Stiles has been hailed as an audio masterpiece and described by John Phipps in The Spectator as a rare, enduring example of radio drama as art. Before we hear that recording, here is Michael West and this week his focus is on the Ithaca episode. Hello there, my name is Michael West. I'm a playwright and translator. And today's excerpt from the exceptional RTE Players 1982 recordings is from Ithaca, known as the Catechism Chapter, very near the end of Ulysses. Its analogue in the Odyssey is the homecoming of the hero after many years of wandering. It's after 1am and Bloom has rescued a rather drunk Stephen from the stews of Dublin. He's kindly offered to take him home and give him a bed. Rather than give voice to these late night carousers, however, the style is written in an impersonal set of questions and helpful answers. Catechism, which is one of the initiation rites to the Catholic Church and one that Bloom himself would have undertaken in order to marry Molly, is a scholastic exercise of pedantry and sadism drawn from the Socratic method of asking questions of a willing but junior partner to elucidate the matter in hand. This is a prototype of the scientific method, the original just asking questions. The Catholic Church's twist is the learning off of required answers to establish an agreed orthodoxy which slightly undermines the spirit of free inquiry. But here in Ulysses, the rhetorical form is as much adapted from the educational encyclopedias for young minds that Joyce would have read in school. As it happens, we quickly discover that the idea of a slightly distracted, fair-minded inquirer like Socrates, asking apparently simple and answerable questions of some unsuspecting Athenian dupe, is a comic mode of instruction and Joyce needs little further encouragement to go to town. Though when you first hear it, you will probably think of a police investigator with a nightmare witness who won't shut up and who notices everything in such detail that he misses the story. Allegedly, this is Joyce's favourite chapter, the, quote, ugly duckling of the book, unquote, as he described it to Frank Budgeon, possibly because it's also one of the origin myths of the genesis of Ulysses based on an experience when Joyce was lightly beaten up and rescued and brought home by an acquaintance of his father's who was suspected of being Jewish. It's a parody not only of the scholastic method, but of all his own observational gifts and his prodigious education and general knowledge, as well as Bloom's own predilection for interesting facts he picks up in magazines like Titbits, a copy of which he reads on the jacks back in Calypso. And, of course, there's Stephen's convoluted musings and enormously wide reading. The basic gag is that of redundancy. Joyce gives you far too much information and you have to pick through or disregard bags of it to understand what's going on. An example is the question about a faucet. Did it flow? The answer is yes, followed by a couple of dense passages explaining where the water came from, Vartry Reservoir, and how it got there, ending up in the Pacific Ocean. But there are fantastic jokes when you get the swing of it. One of the best early ones is Bloom rediscovering he's forgotten his door key. At the house steps of the fourth of the equidifferent uneven numbers, number seven Eccles Street, he inserted his hand mechanically into the back pocket of his trousers to obtain his latch key. Was it there? It was in the corresponding pocket of the trousers which he had worn on the day but one preceding. Why was he doubly irritated? Because he had forgotten and because he remembered that he had reminded himself twice not to forget. The key word in all this is mechanically because the chapter treats of humans and their affairs as if they were rational automatons describing their behaviour and thoughts in the dispassionate language of pseudo-scientific observation. 
And when I say humans, I mean men. This is an extremely male-ordered vision of the world, full of statistics and interesting items of information. It's a sort of Wikipedia approach to a subject where everything is cross-referenced and rabbit-holed, or where questions are typed into the search engine and the answers emerge with copious detail zooming in and out with no sense of the required scale. How much you enjoy this depends on taste, but the zoom-in-out feature is a callback to Portrait, and probably every school child's experience, where Stephen Dedalus signs his name in a school book and tracks out. Stephen Dedalus, Class of Elements, Clongoswood College, Salins, County Kildare, Ireland... Europe, the world, the universe. The questions in Ithaca stick to matters of fact, to verifiable material propositions relating to weight, height, substance, distance and assertion. We learn Bloom's height, 5 foot 9, age, a surprisingly young 36, his weight the last time he was in the pharmacy, 11 stone 4 pounds, all the particulars required of realistic fiction, but laid out on the palette in plain sight and which you have to assemble yourself at home. What follows the Bloom remembering he had forgotten his key sequence is like an episode of Laurel and Hardy transcribed by Martians as Bloom clambers over the railings and drops himself down into the basement well, pushes open the kitchen door he left on the latch, then tiptoes up and invites Stephen in the main door. The comedy is the comedy of absurd exactitude, sending up the correct way of describing things, the correct definition of things, indeed the whole concept of pertinent things when relating the efforts of two tired men, one drunk, attempting to perform the simplest tasks. Since the world of facts offers an apparently solid ground on which to proceed and evaluate matters, the irony Joyce is trusting in is that because we've had almost a whole day and several hundred pages of getting to know not only Stephen and Bloom, but the entire city and social classes that contain them, we are now in a position to see the gap between matters of fact and the deep, roiling sea of uncertainty and chaos that pushes them this way and that. To compensate for his sense of unease, Bloom is fixated not only on tidbits of fact, but in material certainties. Much of his interior monologue consists of nouns. The small potato he carries with him in his pocket, the bar of soap, the missing key. They all have talismanic significance for him in his daily routine. And for us too, when we meet them again. And we feel the same way when among the tumult of details and names, we recognise characters and events from earlier in the day. And even from earlier works like Dubliner's and Portrait of an Artist. These familiarities, these rewards for close reading or accessible memory, grant us a warm sense of homecoming appropriate to the Homeric model this chapter evokes. This idea of reading is important, for Stephen too makes grand claims at the start of the book that he is here to read the signature of all things. This phrase has several meanings, but at its heart it is a quest to seek the structural rhymes and similarities between things. These signatures are part of the same family as Joyce's famous epiphanies, Moments of revelation and insight that capture the essence of a thing in its perfect quiddity, where the soul of the commonest object seems to us radiant. And what is reading the signature of all things other than sifting the evidence for clues at a crime scene? A third version of the catechistical model Joyce is riffing off, after the Catholic Catechism and the Socratic Dialogue of the Well-Meaning Encyclopedia, owes much to the great double act of 19th century Platonic Inquisition that between Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. We touched on the resemblance of the early part of the chapter to a police inquisition, and as the dialogue expands, we follow the many mysteries and clues up false paths and true, and begin to penetrate the labyrinth. Stephen's similarity to Holmes is easily apparent. Holmes is an aesthete, and with his slippers, his pipe and his drug habit, the embodiment of a brilliant bohemian artist that Stephen, and possibly Joyce himself, might aspire to. 
His scientific method is the epitome of reading the signature of things, comparing cases with previous ones, letting his mind roam freely over the potential similarities of eclectic and apparently unconnected phenomena. For Holmes, read Stephen, reading the clues to be found in Sea Spawn and Sea Rack, weighing up the similarities between himself and Hamlet. But where Holmes resembles Stephen, he differs from Joyce in that a clue, in the words of Hugh Kenner, is but a bogus epiphany. And what this means is that although both a crime story and a story from Dubliners climax on the last page where everything comes together, in the case of the crime mystery, the clues form a path of efficient causes, linking events and people and places in which their use is expended the moment the link is delivered. We see this in the way we forget most of the path, the moment the crime itself is resolved and the villain revealed. The Joyce in Epiphany in contrast, lands on the radiant specificity, the whatness of the thing, its unique property, its ineffable essence, held in a moment of blinding clarity for all time. The brilliance of Holmes comes to us through the undying admiration of Watson. Stephen's brilliance comes to us through Joyce, who is a little more sceptical of his gifts, largely because Stephen hasn't written Dubliners, let alone Ulysses. As the Watson in this comic duo... Bloom diligently records his thoughts as he goes on his quest, noting his speculations, false theories and conclusions, much in the manner of the well-meaning doctor. But the difference is that Bloom already knows the answer to the mystery he's trying to solve. His wife is having sex with Blazes Boylan. Everywhere he looks, Bloom finds evidence, and his journey is equal parts forgetting or avoiding that evidence as opposed to seeking it out. The last thing Bloom wants to do is come home early and catch them at it. In Ithaca, Bloom and Stephen exchange not even a line of direct discourse. Everything is mediated by objective description and inferred by our internal empathic responses. And the detective in us is roused to make sense of it all. And behind the veil of objective description, we start to construct and understand Bloom's grief and burden. We learn of the suicide of his father in a hotel in Clare, the sadness he carries with him over his son's death, aged 11, like Shakespeare's son Hamlet, the love he still bears for his unfaithful wife, and the complicated feelings he has about their marriage. In this most abstract, male, objective and emotionally arid chapter, we paradoxically feel the humanity of Bloom, partly because we have to construct it for ourselves, and to do so recognises that we all construct ourselves out of just such fragments. Playwright Michael West discussing Ithaca, episode 17 from James Joyce's Ulysses. And now we'll hear an excerpt from the episode itself. Narrated in the third person and through a set of 309 questions and their detailed and methodical answers, the episode charts Bloom and Stephen's walk home, chatting about music and politics. Arriving home, Bloom is frustrated to find that he forgot his key. Ronnie Walsh plays Bloom and Patrick Dawson plays Stephen Dedalus. What parallel courses did Bloom and Stephen follow returning? Starting united, both at normal walking pace from Beresford Place, they followed in the order named Lower and Middle Gardner Streets and Mountjoy Square West. Then, at reduced pace, each bearing left, 
Gardener's Place by an inadvertence as far as the farther corner of Temple Street North, then, at reduced pace with interruptions of halt, bearing right, Temple Street North as far as Hardwick Place. Approaching, disparate, at relaxed walking pace, they crossed both the circus before George's Church diametrically, the cord in any circle being less than the arc which it subtends. Of what did the duumvirate deliberate during their itinerary? Music, literature, Ireland, Dublin, Paris, friendship, woman, prostitution, diet, the influence of gaslight or the light of arc and glow lamps on the growth of adjoining paraheliotropic trees, exposed corporation emergency dust buckets, the Roman Catholic Church, ecclesiastical celibacy, the Irish nation, Jesuit education, careers, the study of medicine, the past day, the malfeasant influence of the pre-Sabbath, Stephen's collapse. Did Bloom discover common factors of similarity between their respective like and unlike reactions to experience? Both were sensitive to artistic impressions, musical in preference to plastic or pictorial. Both preferred a continental to an insular manner of life, a cisatlantic to a transatlantic place of residence. Both, indurated by early domestic training and an inherited tenacity of heterodox resistance, professed their disbelief in many orthodox religious, national, social and ethical doctrines. Both admitted the alternately stimulating and obtunding influence of heterosexual magnetism. Were their views on some points divergent? Stephen dissented openly from Bloom's views on the importance of dietary and civic self-help, while Bloom dissented tacitly from Stephen's views on the eternal affirmation of the spirit of man in literature. Bloom assented covertly to Stephen's rectification of the anachronism involved in assigning the date of the conversion of the Irish nation to Christianity from Druidism by Patrick, son of Calpornus, son of Potitus, son of Idesus, sent by Pope Celestine I in the year 432 in the reign of Leary to the year 260 or thereabouts in the reign of Cormac MacArt, died 266 AD, suffocated by imperfect deglutition of aliment at Sletty and interred at Rosnery. The collapse, which Bloom ascribed to gastric inanition and certain chemical compounds of varying degrees of adulteration and alcoholic strength, accelerated by mental exertion and the velocity of rapid circular motion in a relaxing atmosphere, Stephen attributed to the reapparition of the matutinal cloud, perceived by both from two different points of observation, Sandy Cove and Dublin, at first no bigger than a woman's hand. Was there one point on which their views were equal and negative? The influence of gaslight or electric light on the growth of adjoining paraheliotropic trees. Had Bloom discussed similar subjects during nocturnal perambulations in the past? In 1884, with Owen Goldberg and Cecil Turnbull, at night, on public thoroughfares between Longwood Avenue and Leonard's Corner, and Leonard's Corner and Sing Street, and Sing Street and Bloomfield Avenue. In 1885, with Percy Apjohn in the evenings, reclined against the wall between Gibraltar Villa and Bloomfield House in Crumlin, Barony of Uppercross. In 1886, occasionally with casual acquaintances and prospective purchasers on doorsteps, in front parlours, in third-class railway carriages of suburban lines. In 1888, frequently with Major Brian Tweedy and his daughter Miss Marion Tweedy, together and separately on the lounge in Matthew Dillon's house in Roundtown. Once in 1892 and once in 1893 with Julius Mastiansky on both occasions in the parlour of his Bloom's house in Lombard Street West. 
What reflection concerning the irregular sequence of dates 1884, 1885, 1886, 1888, 1892, 1893, 1904 did Bloom make before their arrival at their destination? He reflected that the progressive extension of the field of individual development and experience was regressively accompanied by a restriction of the converse domain of inter-individual relations. As in what ways? From inexistence to existence. He came to many and was as one received. Existence with existence, he was with any as any with any. From existence to non-existence gone, he would be by all as none perceived. What action did Bloom make on their arrival at their destination? At the house steps of the fourth of the equidifferent uneven numbers, number 7, Eccles Street, he inserted his hand mechanically into the back pocket of his trousers to obtain his latch key. Was it there? It was in the corresponding pocket of the trousers which he had worn on the day but one preceding. Why was he doubly irritated? Because he had forgotten and because he remembered that he had reminded himself twice not to forget. What were the then alternatives before the premeditatedly, respectively and inadvertently keyless couple? To enter or not to enter. To knock or not to knock. Bloom's decision? A stratagem. Resting his feet on the dwarf wall, he climbed over the area railings, compressed his hat on his head, grasped two points at the lower union of rails and stiles, lowered his body gradually by its length of five feet nine inches and a half to within two feet ten inches of the area pavement, and allowed his body to move freely in space by separating himself from the railings and crouching in preparation for the impact of the fall. Did he fall? By his body's known weight of 11 stone and 4 pounds in avoirdupois measure, as certified by the graduated machine for periodical self-weighing, in the premises of Francis Friedman, pharmaceutical chemist of 19 Frederick Street North, on the last feast day of the ascension, to wit, the 12th day of May of the bisectile year 1904 of the Christian era, Jewish era 5664, Mohammedan era 1322. Golden number 5, EPACT 13, Solar Cycle 9, Dominical Letters CB, Roman Indication 2, Julian Period 6617MXMIV. Did he rise uninjured by concussion? Regaining new stable equilibrium, he rose uninjured, though concussed by the impact, raised the latch of the area door by the exertion of force at its freely moving flange, and by leverage of the first kind applied at its fulcrum, gained retarded access to the kitchen through the subadjacent scullery, ignited a lucifer match by friction, set free inflammable coal gas by turning on the vent cock, lit a high flame which, by regulating, he reduced to quiescent candescence and lit finally a portable candle. What discreet succession of images did Stephen meanwhile perceive? Reclined against the area railings, he perceived through the transparent kitchen panes a man regulating a gas flame of 14 CP, a man lighting a candle, a man removing in turn each of his two boots, a man leaving the kitchen holding a candle of 1 CP. Did the man reappear elsewhere? After a lapse of four minutes, the glimmer of his candle was discernible through the semi-transparent, semi-circular glass fanlight over the hall door. The hall door turned gradually on its hinges. In the open space of the doorway, the man reappeared without his hat, with his candle. Did Stephen obey his sign? Yes. Entering softly, he helped to close and chain the door, and followed softly along the hallway the man's back and listed feet and lighted candle.
past a lighted crevice of doorway on the left, and carefully down a turning staircase of more than five steps into the kitchen of Bloom's house. What did Bloom do? He extinguished the candle by a sharp expiration of breath upon its flame, drew two spoon-seat deal chairs to the hearthstone, one for Stephen with its back to the area window, the other for himself when necessary, knelt on one knee, composed in the grate a pyre of cross-laid, resin-tipped sticks and various coloured papers and irregular polygons of best Abram coal at 21 shillings a tonne from the yard of Messrs. Flower and MacDonald of 14 Delier Street, kindled it at three projecting points of paper with one ignited lucifer match, thereby releasing the potential energy contained in the fuel by allowing its carbon and hydrogen elements to enter into free union with the oxygen of the air. Of what similar apparitions did Stephen think? Of others elsewhere in other times who, kneeling on one knee or on two, had kindled fires for him. Of Brother Michael in the infirmary of the College of the Society of Jesus at Clongo's Wood, Salons, in the county of Kildare, of his father, Simon Dedalus, in an unfurnished room of his first residence in Dublin, number 13 Fitzgibbon Street, of his godmother, Miss Kate Morkan, in the house of her dying sister, Miss Julia Morkan, at 15 Usher's Island, of his mother Mary, wife of Simon Dedalus, in the kitchen of number 12 North Richmond Street, on the morning of the feast of St. Francis Saviour, 1898, of the Dean of Studies, Father Butt, in the Physics Theatre of University College, 16 Stevens Green North, of his sister Dilly, Delia, in his father's house in Cabra. What did Stephen see on raising his gaze to the height of a yard from the fire towards the opposite wall? Under a row of five-coiled spring-house bells, a curvilinear rope stretched between two holdfasts athwart across the recess beside the chimney pier, from which hung four small-sized square handkerchiefs folded unattached consecutively in adjacent rectangles, and one pair of ladies' grey hose with lyle suspender tops and feet in their habitual position, clamped by three erect wooden pegs, two at their outer extremities and the third at their point of junction. What did Bloom see on the range? On the right, smaller hob, a blue enamelled saucepan. On the left, larger hob, a black iron kettle. What did Bloom do at the range? He removed the saucepan to the left hob, rose and carried the iron kettle to the sink in order to tap the current by turning the faucet to let it flow. Did it flow? Yes. From Roundwood Reservoir in County Wicklow of a cubic capacity of 2,400 million gallons, percolating through a subterranean aqueduct of filter mains of single and double pipage constructed at an initial plant cost of £5 per linear yard, by way of the Dargle, Rathdown, Glen of the Downs and Callow Hill to the 26-acre reservoir at Stillorgan, a distance of 22 statute miles, and thence through a system of relieving tanks by a gradient of 250 feet to the city boundary at Eustace Bridge, Upper Leeson Street. Though from prolonged summer drought, the daily supply of 12.5 million gallons, the water had fallen below the sill of the overflow weir, for which reason the borough surveyor and waterworks engineer, Mr Spencer Harty C.E., on the instructions of the Waterworks Committee, had prohibited the use of municipal water for purposes other than those of consumption, envisaging the possibility of recourse being had to the impotable water of the Grand and Royal Canals, as in 1893. 
particularly as the South Dublin Guardians, notwithstanding their ration of 15 gallons per day per pauper, supplied through a six-inch metre, had been convicted of a wastage of 20,000 gallons per night by a reading of their metre on the affirmation of the law agent of the corporation, Mr Ignatius Rice Solicitor, thereby acting to the detriment of another section of the public, self-supporting taxpayers, solvent, sound. What in water did Bloom, water lover, drawer of water, water carrier returning to the range, admire? Its universality, its democratic equality and constancy to its nature in seeking its own level, its vastness in the ocean of Mercator's projection, its unplumbed profundity in the sun-dam trench of the Pacific exceeding 8,000 fathoms, the restlessness of its waves and surface particles visiting in turn all points of its seaboard, the independence of its units, the variability of states of sea, its hydrostatic quiescence in calm, its hydrokinetic turgidity in neap and spring tides, its subsidence after devastation, its sterility in the circumpolar ice caps, Arctic and Antarctic, its climatic and commercial significance, its preponderance of three to one over the dry land of the globe its indisputable hegemony extending in square leagues over all the region below the sub-equatorial Tropic of Capricorn, the multi-secular stability of its primeval basin, its lutofulvous bed, its capacity to dissolve and hold in solution all soluble substances, including millions of tons of the most precious metals, its slow erosions of peninsulas and downward-tending promontories, its alluvial deposits, its weight and volume and density, its imperturbability in lagoons and highland tarns, its gradation of colours in the torrid and temperate and frigid zones, its vehicular ramifications in continental lake-contained streams and confluent ocean-flowing rivers with their tributaries and transoceanic currents, gulf stream, north and south equatorial courses, its violence in sea quakes, water spouts, artesian wells, eruptions, torrents, eddies, freshets, spates, groundswells, watersheds, water partings, geysers, cataracts, whirlpools, maelstroms, inundations, deluges, cloudbursts. Its vast, circumterrestrial, a horizontal curve. Its secrecy in springs and latent humidity revealed by rhabdomantic and hygrometric instruments and exemplified by the hole in the wall at Ashtown Gate. Saturation of air, distillation of dew, the simplicity of its composition, two constituent parts of hydrogen and one constituent part of oxygen, its healing virtues, its buoyancy in the waters of the Dead Sea, its persevering penetrativeness in runnels, gullies, inadequate dams, leaks on shipboard, its properties for cleansing, quenching thirst and fire, nourishing vegetation, its infallibility as paradigm and paragon, its metamorphosis as vapour, mist, cloud, rain, sleet, snow, hail, its strength in rigid hydrants, its variety of forms in locks and bays and gulfs and bites and guts and lagoons and atolls and archipelagos and sounds and fjords and minches and tidal estuaries and arms of sea, its solidity in glaciers, icebergs, ice flows, its docility in working hydraulic mill wheels, turbines, dynamos, electric power stations, bleach works, tanneries, scutch mills, its utility in canals, rivers if navigable, floating and graving docks, its potentiality derivable from harness tides or watercourses falling from level to level, its submarine fauna and flora, an acoustic photophobe, numerically, if not literally, the inhabitants of the globe. 
Its ubiquity as constituting 90% of the human body. The noxiousness of its effluvia in lacustrine marshes, pestilential fens, faded flower water, stagnant pools in the waning moon. Having set the half-filled kettle on the now-burning coals, why did he return to the still-flowing tap? To wash his soiled hands with a partially consumed tablet of Barrington's lemon-flavoured soap, to which paper still adhered, bought thirteen hours previously for fourpence and still unpaid for, in fresh, cold, never-changing, ever-changing water, and dry them, face and hands, in a long, red-bordered holland cloth passed over a wooden revolving roller. What reason did Stephen give for declining Bloom's offer? That he was hydrophobe, hating partial contact by immersion or total by submersion in cold water, his last bath having taken place in the month of October of the preceding year, disliking the aqueous substances of glass and crystal, distrusting aquacities of thought and language. What impeded Bloom from giving Stephen counsels of hygiene and prophylactic, to which should be added suggestions concerning a preliminary wetting of the head and contraction of the muscles, with rapid splashing of the face and neck and thoracic and epigastric region in the case of sea or river bathing, the parts of the human anatomy most sensitive to cold being the nape, stomach and tenor or sole of foot. The incompatibility of aquacity with the erratic originality of genius. What additional didactic counsels did he similarly repress? Dietary, concerning the respective percentage of protein and caloric energy in bacon, salt ling and butter, the absence of the former in the last named and the abundance of the latter in the first named. Which seemed to the host to be the predominant qualities of his guest? Confidence in himself, an equal and opposite power of abandonment and recuperation. What concomitant phenomenon took place in the vessel of liquid by the agency of fire? The phenomenon of ebullition. Fanned by a constant updraft of ventilation between the kitchen and the chimney flue, ignition was communicated from the faggots of pre-combustible fuel to polyhedral masses of bituminous coal, containing in compressed mineral form the foliated fossilised decidua of primeval forests, which had in turn derived their vegetative existence from the sun, primal source of heat, radiant, transmitted through omnipresent luminiferous diatherminous ether. Heat, convected. A mode of motion developed by such combustion was constantly and increasingly conveyed from the source of calorification to the liquid contained in the vessel being radiated through the uneven, unpolished, dark surface in part reflected, in part absorbed, in part transmitted, gradually raising the temperature of the water from normal to boiling point, a rise in temperature expressible as a result of an expenditure of 72 thermal units needed to raise one pound of water from 50 degrees to 212 degrees Fahrenheit. What announced the accomplishment of this rise in temperature? A double falciform ejection of water vapour from under the kettle lid at both sides simultaneously. For what personal purpose could Bloom have applied the water so boiled? To shave himself. What advantages attended shaving by night? A softer beard. A softer brush, if intentionally allowed to remain from shave to shave in its agglutinated lather. A softer skin, if unexpectedly encountering female acquaintances in remote places at incustomary hours. Quiet reflections upon the course of the day. A cleaner sensation when awaking after a fresher sleep, since matutinal noises, premonitions and perturbations, a clattered milk can, a postman's double knock, a paper read, re-read while lathering, re-lathering the same spot, a shock, a shoot. With thought of aught he sought, though fraught with naught, might cause a faster rate of shaving, and a nick on which incision plaster, with precision cut and humected and applied, adhered, which was to be done. Why did absence of light disturb him less than presence of noise? Because of the surety of the sense of touch in his firm, full, masculine, feminine, passive, active hand.
What quality did it, his hand, possess, but with what counteracting influence? The operative surgical quality, but that he was reluctant to shed human blood, even when the end justified the means, preferring, in their natural order, heliotherapy, psychophysiotherapeutics, osteopathic surgery. What lay under exposure on the lower, middle and upper shelves of the kitchen dresser opened by Bloom? On the lower shelf, five vertical breakfast plates, six horizontal breakfast saucers on which rested inverted breakfast cups, a moustache cup, uninverted, and saucer of Crown Derby, four white gold-rimmed egg cups, an open chamois purse displaying coins, mostly copper, and a file of aromatic violet comfits. On the middle shelf, a chipped egg cup containing pepper, a drum of table salt, four conglomerated black olives in oleogenous paper, an empty pot of plum trees potted meat, an oval wicker basket bedded with fibre and containing one jersey pear, a half-empty bottle of William Gilby & Co.'s white invalid port, half disrobed of its swathe of coral pink tissue paper, a packet of Epps soluble cocoa, five ounces of Anne Lynch's choice tea at two shillings per pound, in a crinkled lead paper bag, a cylindrical canister containing the best crystallised lump sugar, two onions, one the larger Spanish, entire, the other smaller, Irish, bisected with augmented surface and more redolent, a jar of Irish model dairy's cream, a jug of brown crockery containing a noggin and a quarter of soured adulterated milk converted by heat into water, acidulous serum and semi-solidified curds, which, added to the quantity subtracted from Mr Bloom and Mrs Fleming's breakfasts, made one imperial pint. The total quantity originally delivered. Two cloves, a halfpenny and a small dish containing a slice of fresh rib steak. On the upper shelf a battery of jam jars of various sizes and provenances. What attracted his attention lying on the apron of the dresser? Four polygonal fragments of two lacerated scarlet betting tickets numbered 887-886. What reminiscences temporarily corrugated his brow? Reminiscences of coincidences, truth stranger than fiction, pre-indicative of the result of the gold cup flat handicap, the official and definitive result of which he had read in the evening telegraph, late pink edition, in the cabman's shelter at Buttbridge. Where had previous intimations of the result affected or projected been received by him? In Bernard Kiernan's licensed premises, 8, 9 and 10 Little Britain Street. In David Byrne's licensed premises, 14 Duke Street. In O'Connell Street Lower, outside Graham Lemons, when a dark man had placed in his hand a throwaway, subsequently thrown away, advertising Elijah, restorer of the church in Zion. In Lincoln Place, outside the premises of F.W. Sweeney and Co. Limited, dispensing chemists, when, when Frederick M. Bantam Lyons had rapidly and successively requested, perused and restituted the copy of the current issue of the Freeman's Journal and National Press, which he had been about to throw away, subsequently thrown away, he had proceeded towards the oriental edifice of the Turkish and Warm Baths, 11 Leinster Street, with the light of inspiration shining in his countenance and bearing in his arms the secret of the race, graven in the language of prediction. What qualifying considerations allayed his perturbations? The difficulties of interpretation, since the significance of any event followed its occurrence, as variably as the acoustic report followed the electrical discharge, and of counterestimating against an actual loss by failure to interpret the total sum of possible losses proceeding originally from a successful interpretation. His mood? He had not risked. He did not expect. He had not been disappointed. He was satisfied. What satisfied him? To have sustained no positive loss, to have brought a positive gain to others, light to the Gentiles. How did Bloom prepare a collation for a Gentile? 
He poured into two teacups two level spoonfuls, four in all, of Epps-soluble cocoa and proceeded according to the directions for use printed on the label to each adding, after sufficient time for infusion, the prescribed ingredients for diffusion in the manner and in the quantity prescribed. What supererogatory marks of special hospitality did the host show his guest? Relinquishing his symposiacal right to the moustache cup of imitation crown derby presented to him by his only daughter, Millicent, Millie, he substituted a cup identical with that of his guest and served, extraordinary to his guest and in reduced measure to himself, the viscous cream ordinarily reserved for the breakfast of his wife, Marion, Molly. Was the guest conscious of and did he acknowledge these marks of hospitality? His attention was directed to them by his host, jocosely, and he accepted them seriously as they drank, in joco-serious silence, Epps' mass product, the creature Coco. Were there marks of hospitality which he contemplated but suppressed, reserving them for another and for himself on future occasions to complete the act begun? The reparation of a fissure of the length of one and a half inches in the right side of his guest's jacket a gift to his guest of one of the four ladies' handkerchiefs, if and when ascertained to be in a presentable condition. Who drank more quickly? Bloom, having the advantage of ten seconds at the initiation and taking, from the concave surface of a spoon along the handle of which a steady flow of heat was conducted, three sips to his opponent's one, six to two, nine to three. What cerebration accompanied his frequentative act? Concluding by inspection, but erroneously, that his silent companion was engaged in mental composition, he reflected on the pleasures derived from literature, of instruction rather than of amusement, as he himself had applied to the works of William Shakespeare more than once for the solution of difficult problems in imaginary or real life. Had he found their solution? In spite of careful and repeated reading of certain classical passages aided by a glossary, he had derived imperfect conviction from the text the answers not bearing on all points. What lines concluded his first piece of original verse written by him, potential poet, at the age of 11 in 1877, on the occasion of the offering of three prizes of ten shillings, five shillings and two and sixpence respectively by the Shamrock, a weekly newspaper? An ambition to squint at my verses in print makes me hope that for these you'll find room. If you so condescend, then please place at the end the name of yours truly, L. Bloom. Did he find four separating forces between his temporary guest and him? Name, age, race, creed. What anagrams had he made on his name in youth? Leopold Bloom, El Podbamul, Moldoloup, Bolopedum, Old Olibo, M.P. What acrostic upon the abbreviation of his first name had he, kinetic poet, sent to Miss Marian Tweedy on the 14th of February, 1888? Poets oft have sung in rhyme of music sweet their praise divine. Let them hymn it nine times nine. Dearer far than song or wine, you are mine, the world is mine. What had prevented him from completing a topical song, music by R.G. Johnston, on the events of the past or fixtures for the actual years entitled If Brian Boru Could But Come Back and See Old Dublin Now, commissioned by Michael Gunn, lessee of the Gaiety Theatre, 46, 47, 48, 49 South King Street, and to be introduced into the sixth scene, The Valley of Diamonds, of the second edition, 30th of January, 1893, of the grand annual Christmas pantomime Sinbad the Sailor. 
Written by Greenleaf Whittier, scenery by George A. Jackson and Cecil Hicks, costumes by Mrs. and Miss Whelan, produced by R. Shelton, 26th December 1892, under the personal supervision of Mrs. Michael Gunn. Ballets by Jessie Noir, Harlequinade by Thomas Otto, and sung by Nellie Boverist, Principal Girl. Firstly, oscillation between events of imperial and of local interest. The anticipated Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria, born 1820, acceded 1837, and the post-anticipated opening of the new municipal fish market. Secondly, apprehension of opposition from extreme circles on the questions of the respective visits of their Royal Highnesses the Duke and Duchess of York, real, and of His Majesty King Brian Boru, imaginary. Thirdly, a conflict between professional etiquette and professional emulation concerning the recent erections of the Grand Lyric Hall on Burg Quay and the Theatre Royal in Hawken Street. Fourthly, Distraction, resultant from the compassion for Nellie Boverist's non-intellectual, non-political, non-topical expression of countenance and concupiscence caused by Nellie Boverist's revelations of white articles of non-intellectual, non-political, non-topical underclothing while she, Nellie Boverist, was in the articles. Fifthly, the difficulties of the selection of appropriate music and humorous allusions from everybody's book of jokes, 1,000 pages and a laugh in every one. Sixthly, the rhymes, homophonous and cacophonous, associated with the names of the new Lord Mayor, Daniel Tallon, the new High Sheriff, Thomas Pyle, and the new Solicitor General, Dunbar Plunkett Barton. What relation existed between their ages? Sixteen years before, in 1888, when Bloom was of Stephen's present age, Stephen was six. Sixteen years after, in 1920, when Stephen would be of Bloom's present age, Bloom would be 54. In 1936, when Bloom would be 70 and Stephen 54, their ages initially in the ratio of 16 to naught would be as 17 and a half to 13 and a half, the proportion increasing and the disparity diminishing according as arbitrary future years were added. For if the proportion existing in 1883 had continued immutable, conceiving that to be possible, till then, 1904, when Stephen was 22, Bloom would be 374, and in 1920, when Stephen would be 38, as Bloom then was, Bloom would be 646. While in 1952, when Stephen would have attained the maximum post-Diluvian age of 70, Bloom, being 1190 years alive, having been born in the year 714, would have surpassed by 221 years the maximum antediluvian age, that of Methuselah, 969 years, while if Stephen would continue to live until he would attain that age in the year 3072 AD, Bloom would have been obliged to have been alive 83,300 years, having been obliged to have been born in the year 81,396 BC. What events might nullify these calculations? The cessation of existence of both or either, the inauguration of a new era or calendar, the annihilation of the world and consequent extermination of the human species, inevitable but impredictable. How many previous encounters proved their pre-existing acquaintance? Two. The first in the lilac garden of Matthew Dillon's house, Medina Villa Kimmage Road, Round Town, in 1887, in the company of Stephen's mother, Stephen being then of the age of five and reluctant to give his hand in salutation. The second in the coffee room of Breslin's Hotel on a rainy Sunday in the January of 1892, in the company of Stephen's father and Stephen's granduncle, Stephen being then five years older. 
Did Bloom accept the invitation to dinner given then by the son and afterwards seconded by the father? Very gratefully, with grateful appreciation, with sincere appreciative gratitude, in appreciatively grateful sincerity of regret, he declined. Did their conversation on the subject of these reminiscences reveal a third connecting link between them? Mrs Reardon, a widow of independent means, had resided in the house of Stephen's parents from the 1st of September 1888 to the 29th of December 1891 and had also resided during the years 1892, 1893 and 1894 in the City Arms Hotel owned by Elizabeth O'Dowd of 54 Prussia Street where during parts of the years 1893 and 1894 she had been a constant informant of Bloom who resided also in the same hotel being at that time a clerk in the employment of Joseph Cuff of Five Smithfield for the superintendence of sales in the adjacent Dublin cattle market on the North Circular Road. Had he performed any special corporal work of mercy for her? He had sometimes propelled her on warm summer evenings, an infirm widow of independent, if limited, means, in her convalescent bath chair, with slow revolutions of its wheels as far as the corner of the North Circular Road opposite Mr Gavin Lowe's place of business, where she had remained for a certain time, scanning through his one-lensed binocular field glasses unrecognisable citizens on tramcars, roadster bicycles, equipped with inflated pneumatic tyres, hackney carriages, tandems, private and hired landors, dog carts, pony traps and brakes, passing from the city to the Phoenix Park and vice versa. Why could he then support that, his vigil, with the greater equanimity? Because in middle youth he had often sat observing through a rondel of bossed glass of a multicoloured pane, the spectacle offered, with continual changes of the thoroughfare without, pedestrians, quadrupeds, velocipedes, vehicles, passing slowly, quickly, evenly, round and round and round the rim of a round, precipitous globe. What distinct different memories had each of her now eight years deceased? The older... Her bezique cards and counters, her sky terrier, her suppositious wealth, her lapses of responsiveness and incipient catarrhal deafness. The younger, her lamp of colza oil before the statue of the Immaculate Conception. Her green and maroon brushes for Charles Stuart Parnell and for Michael Davitt. Her tissue papers. Were there no means still remaining to him to achieve the rejuvenation which these reminiscences divulged to a younger companion rendered them more desirable? The indoor exercises, formerly intermittently practised, subsequently abandoned, prescribed in Eugene Sandow's Physical Strength and How to Obtain It, which, designed particularly for commercial men engaged in sedentary occupations, were to be made with mental concentration in front of a mirror so as to bring into play the various families of muscles and produce successively a pleasant relaxation and the most pleasant representation of juvenile agility. Had any special agility been his in earlier youth? Though ring-weight lifting had been beyond his strength and the full-circle gyration beyond his courage, yet as a high school scholar he had excelled in his stable and protracted execution of the half-lever movement on the parallel bars in consequence of his abnormally developed abdominal muscles. Did either openly allude to their racial difference? Neither. What, reduced to their simplest reciprocal form, were Bloom's thoughts about Stephen's thoughts about Bloom and Bloom's thoughts about Stephen's thoughts about Bloom's thoughts about Stephen? He thought that he thought that he was a Jew, whereas he knew that he knew that he knew that he was not. What, the enclosures of reticence removed, were their respective parentages? Bloom, 
Only born male transubstantial heir of Rudolf Virag, subsequently Rudolf Bloom, of Zombatli, Vienna, Budapest, Milan, London and Dublin, and of Ellen Higgins, second daughter of Julius Higgins, born Caroli, and Fanny Higgins, born Hegarty. Stephen, eldest surviving male consubstantial heir of Simon Dedalus of Cork and Dublin, and of Mary, daughter of Richard and Christina Goulding, born Greer. Had Bloom and Stephen been baptised, and where and by whom, cleric or layman? Bloom, three times, by the Reverend Mr. Gilmer Johnson, M.A., alone in the Protestant Church of St. Nicholas without Coombe. By James O'Connor, Philip Gilligan and James Fitzpatrick, together, under a pump in the village of Swords. And by the Reverend Charles Malone, C.C., in the Church of the Three Patrons, Rathgar. Stephen once, by the Reverend Charles Malone, C.C., alone in the Church of the Three Patrons, Rathgar. Did they find their educational careers similar? Substituting Stephen for Bloom, Stoom would have passed successively through a dame school and the high school. Substituting Bloom for Stephen, Bleven would have passed successively through the preparatory, junior, middle and senior grades of the intermediate and through the matriculation, first arts, second arts and arts degree course of the Royal University. Why did Bloom refrain from stating that he had frequented the University of Life? Because of his fluctuating incertitude as to whether this observation had or had not been already made by him to Stephen or by Stephen to him. What two temperaments did they individually represent? The scientific. The artistic. What proofs did Bloom adduce to prove that his tendency was towards applied rather than towards pure science? Certain possible inventions of which he had cogitated when reclining in a state of supine repletion to aid digestion, stimulated by his appreciation of the importance of inventions now common but once revolutionary. For example, the aeronautic parachute, the reflecting telescope, the spiral corkscrew, the safety pin, the mineral water siphon, the canal lock with winch and sluice, the suction pump. Were these inventions principally intended for an improved scheme of kindergarten? Yes, rendering obsolete pop-guns, elastic air-bladders, games of hazard, catapults. They comprised astronomical kaleidoscopes exhibiting the twelve constellations of Zodiac from Aries to Pisces, miniature mechanical orreries, arithmetical gelatine lozenges, geometrical to correspond with zoological biscuits, globe-map playing balls, historically costumed dolls. What also stimulated him in his cogitations? The financial success achieved by Ephraim Marx and Charles A. James, the former by his Penny Bazaar at 42 Georgia Street South, the latter at his Sixpence Halfpenny Shop and World's Fancy Fair and Waxwork Exhibition at 30 Henry Street, admission two pence, children a penny, and the infinite possibilities hitherto unexploited of the modern art of advertisement, if condensed in triliteral monoidal symbols, vertically of maximum visibility, divined, horizontally of maximum legibility, deciphered, and of magnetising efficacy to arrest involuntary attention, to interest, to convince, to decide. Such as? K-11, Kino's 11 shilling trousers. House of Keys, Alexander J. Keys. Such as not? Look at this long candle. Calculate when it burns out and you receive gratis one pair of our special non-compo boots, guaranteed one candle power. Address, Barclay and Cook, 18 Talbot Street. Basilic Hill, insect powder. Very best boot blacking. You want it. Combined pocket two-blade penknife with corkscrew, nail file and pipe cleaner. Such as never. What is home without plum trees potted meat? Incomplete. 
with it an abode of bliss, manufactured by George Plumtree, 23 Merchants Quay, Dublin, put up in four-ounce pots and inserted by Councillor Joseph P. Nanetti, MP, Rotunda Ward, 19 Hardwick Street, under the obituary notices and anniversaries of deceases. The name on the label is Plumtree. A Plumtree is a meat pot, registered trademark. Beware of imitations. Pete Mott, Trumpley, Montpat, Plumtree. Which example did he adduce to induce Stephen to deduce that originality, though producing its own reward, does not invariably conduce to success? His own ideated and rejected project of an illuminated show cart drawn by a beast of burden in which two smartly dressed girls were to be seated engaged in writing. What suggested scene was then constructed by Stephen? Solitary hotel in Mountain Pass. Autumn. Twilight. Firelit. In dark corner, young man seated. Young woman enters, restless, solitary. She sits. She goes to window. She stands. She sits. Twilight. She thinks. On solitary hotel paper, she writes. She thinks. She writes. She sighs. Wheels and hoofs. She hurries out. He comes from his dark corner. He seizes solitary paper. He holds it towards fire. Twilight. He reads, solitary. What? In sloping, upright and back hands. Queen's Hotel. Queen's Hotel. Queen's Hotel. What suggested scene was then reconstructed by Bloom? The Queen's Hotel, Ennis County Clare, where Rudolph Bloom, Rudolph Virag, died on the evening of the 27th June, 1886, at some hour unstated, in consequence of an overdose of monkshood, aconite. You've been listening to an excerpt from Ithaca, episode 17 from Joyce's Ulysses, the 1982 recording by the RTE Players, directed by William Stiles and recorded by Marcus MacDonald. Ronnie Walsh played Leopold Bloom and Patrick Dawson played Stephen Dedalus. For full production credits, go to rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Our season continues next week when Michael West introduces the Penelope episode. The complete recording of Ulysses as well as the RTE player's adaptation of Dubliners and Joyce's play Exiles are available to listen to at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. And listeners might like to know that James Joyce's Dubliners adapted by Michael West and Annie Ryan for the Corn Exchange is playing at Smock Alley. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.